This week's show is supported by Lend With Care Australia. Lend With Care is a revolutionary way to help people change their own lives, creating big change through small loans. Millions of hardworking people around the world have big ideas to support their families and all they need is the right opportunity. You can provide that opportunity today with as little as $25 and you can help a person get their ideas off the ground and change their family's future. You lend, they grow, they repay, and then you can relend to someone else. Visit lendwithcare.org.au and start lending today. Hello and welcome to The Crux, the weekly Women's Agenda podcast. In today's episode, we are talking about Australia's supposedly top eight mentors who all happen to be men. We'll also look at a new report showing how most employers are failing to take complaints of sexual harassment and discrimination seriously, plus a woman showing Australia what perimenopause is really like and doing so on live TV. Thank you for listening. We are recording this episode of The Crux on the 10th of November, 2023. My name is Angela Priestley, joining you from Gadigal Land. And as always, I am joined by my co-founder and Women's Agenda editor, Tala Lambert. Hello, Tala. Hey, Ange. How's it going? Good, thank you. Uh, I think we should jump straight in. Let's get to some wins. We all need some wins with the news at the moment. So what is your win? Well, to be fair, there have been quite a number of wins this week, and we're going to be focusing on a few this episode. But my big win this week has to go to the Matildas, who have secured a new pay deal that could see the team's top players earning up to $200,000 in addition to tournament prize money and their club salaries. So the deal is part of a new collective bargaining agreement that brings the Matildas' pay and conditions in line with their male counterparts. That's uh, long overdue and it also has a new structure that will see 70% of player payments in match fees and 30% in an annual commercial payment. So that's really exciting. I mean, I think that there's been a lot of headway around remuneration for female athletes in recent times and and equal remuneration. We, we've still got obviously a long way to go, but the Matildas really showed this year, you know, just how much they can make an impact and how quickly they can kind of change the the face of sport, I guess. And I think, you know, while every every kind of code should be equally remunerated, it's it's a bit ridiculous that they were were still out in the cold as well and and not getting that that kind of same payment as the Socceroos. So this is yeah really good to see. James Johnson, who's the CEO of Football Australia, said the collective bargaining agreement was a sophisticated economic model that rewarded players in line with the growth and commercial success of Australia's two national teams. And um, when we're talking about the growth and commercial success of Football in this country, it's really hard to look past the Matildas. Ange. Yeah, when I first saw this story, I thought it was about the Socceroos getting equal pay to the Matildas, but, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, it should be, right? Yeah, exactly. exactly. Uh, no, I mean, I, I, my understanding is that they've had, you know, they've done better than most other teams internationally in terms of meeting uh, similar pay to their male counterparts, but this is like such a, a real win and seeing like especially around the conditions like and and, you know I think for both teams as well because it was a collective bargaining agreement but that one of the conditions was that you know you could actually have your a young child stay with you up to the age of four and you just sort of think well that that is like such a win for the parents we know that there are you know parents across those two teams to be able to have their young children there so that was that was nice to see yeah a hundred percent it shows that um it shows that 
like sporting codes are looking at the ways that they can, you know, really progress in a meaningful way holistically. And I, I think that that's, it's always really nice to see. So yeah, big win this week. And what's your win? Okay, so I, I thought I'd do something international, given everything else that's going on internationally. But just to point to a bit of a bright spot in the United States this week, so marking um, what you know, what is a significant win for women and particularly reproductive rights, and they come, you know, basically sort of trying to claw back uh, some of these rights after the U.S. Supreme Court overruled the constitutional right to an abortion by reversing uh, Roe v. Wade, uh, what like over a year ago now. Um, so it came via a number of wins for Democrats in some of, uh, you know, some particularly conservative states in Virginia. So in Virginia, Democrats held onto their Senate majority and reclaimed control of the House from Republicans, which means they'll be able to block a Republican move to ban abortions beyond 15 weeks of conception. In Ohio, residents voted in favour of establishing a constitutional right to abortion with the amendment looking set to pass. And in Kentucky, the Democrat governor there, Andy Bashir, he was re-elected for a second term. And he actually campaigned extensively on abortion rights, which I think was really interesting. He actually made it one of his most important campaign issues in the state. And so it showed that, you know, if you go and you campaign on those rights and, you know, you can actually win the elections. I think it's a nice little demonstration for all the other candidates to come. So I thought that was that was good to highlight. Obviously, a lot more work to do there. And we won't talk about the uh, Republican debate that occurred a couple of days days ago, which was a little bit uh, terrifying to hear. And it didn't even have Trump on the stage. So even without <laughs> Trump, it was terrifying. But anyway, a couple of wins there. To the next story this week. So we're looking at a list of Australia's top eight recommended mentors for startup founders. And Ange, we know a lot of mentors in the world that we work in and a lot of very diverse mentors. Um, but the 2023 Startup Muster Report was based on numerical data garnered from a survey of the startup sector, including close to 585 startup founders and a total of 1,100 founders and supporters. But the first version of the list copped a lot of backlash when it was made public. Why? Because there was not one woman featured on the list. And you wrote a piece on this story this week and you said the list should be seen as a symptom of a sick Australian startup community, which I think is tip of the iceberg. Um, what, what were your thoughts on this? Okay, so, I mean, a lot of people would have seen this on LinkedIn in terms of when this list came out. There was a lot of backlash, rightfully so, about publishing this list. So the first thing to say is that, it, you know, they asked for your most recommended mentor and based on the data that came through, the, the top eight were all men. And, you know, that's the reality of what they asked in the survey and what the result was. So understandably, they just can't go and change that result for the sake of it. But what they did do was they published that list and then they just put in brackets, let's hope for some more diversity next year, close bracket, end of conversation, move on to the next page and the next data point. So I found that particularly uh, problematic because it is a survey that's out there trying to look at some of the issues impacting the startup sector and that just sort of comes out and they don't want to say anything more about it. It's like, well, you know, if you, if you want to be uh, working to solve some of these challenges and why not have some commentary or have a think about it or ask some more questions or dive further into the data to see what might be the issue there. I guess the obvious thing you might say, Tala, is that uh, women don't mentor people. So no. I think that, that's probably the issue, right? I mean, to be fair, we just don't have time. <laughs> The issue is that women mentor too bloody much, if you ask me, in amongst <laughs> everything else that they're fucking doing. So, yeah. <laughs> My first thought, I think when I first started writing a piece, I first started on that idea of that, that there, 
that mentoring can happen really informally with women. Like you just sort of ask a question and you give the answer. You're not, you don't really have time necessarily for this formal approach. But then we also know that a lot of women do offer really, you know, formalized support and mm-hmm. a lot of time. And I've, we've experienced that ourselves and, ourselves and it's, you know, incredible to have that. But I guess the the real issue I think is that, I mean, 27% of the founders surveyed were women. So that, that came up and that, was slightly higher than recent years. So obviously nowhere near 50-50 there. But my sort of take was that, of course, men would come up as the overwhelming favourites as preferred mentors because men hold the keys to accessing money. And Mm. at the end of the day, when it comes to thinking about aspirational mentors, if you're a startup and you need access to capital, you're going to be thinking about whether they might hold some keys to some potential capital. So they would likely come up as, you know, the recommended aspirational mentors. But, yeah, I just had a real issue with all of this because, as, as, you know, Tala, we've written about a lot previously, just 3% of private VC funding went to all female-founded companies in 2022 and just 10% to companies with at least one female co-founder. Yeah. So... Like clearly that is the real issue here. The entire startup sector is um, fundamentally sick and we need more people across the industry and more research and more ideas to try and fix this immediately because we're missing out on really the best ideas at a time when we really need some good ideas. Oh, it's a major issue. And I interviewed Alia Via founder Marissa Warren this week as well. So Alia has just entered as a, a female-owned an operated VC fund that's only backing female-founded companies in the US and Australia. And it's really exciting to see. But I interviewed her earlier this week and she was saying, you know, what we're missing out on when we're not funding these companies is seismic. You know, we we are missing out on so much potential and, and talent and innovation, as you've just noted. But not only that, that diverse teams and ones that are, are female founded or co-female founded are actually like statistically proven to bring in greater ROI. So I think it's at about 35% higher ROI. So, yeah, you know, yeah, just from that, that perspective alone, what are we doing? Like it is so bizarre to me. And, and obviously it is a multifaceted issue. There are so many kind of complex nuanced issues at play and we know that. But we do need to focus, we need to be really laser focused from a policy level, from a, an industry level, from the, the perspective of VC funding and where it's going and, and who's in charge to, to really look at what we can do here to, to shift the dial. Because it's not just something token here. Like I think, as you say, we're at a really, we're at a crisis point in in a big sense across the world and we're facing numerous complex challenges and we need all hands on deck to to really make sure that we're we're innovating in the right way and if we're not getting that that funding to female founders and they're not being recognized in lists like this then there's a a really fundamental problem and I think the issue with this list as well as, and you've you've touched on this as well, but just the, the analysis was mm. lacking, right? Like they, they did note in that original list, oh, you know, hopefully we see more diversity next year. Mm. But it's like you can't just say hopefully we see more diversity next year. We're probably not going to see more diversity next year unless the work is done to make sure that we do see that change. So um, mm. and there, there was 
no analysis into what was actually happening and what the the kind of reasons were behind the these huge gaps anyway i think it's great that it got called out it did face quite a lot of backlash they came out <laughs> i think a couple of days later with an all female mentor list uh if that doesn't spell tokenism i don't know what <laughs> that was another problem that was like even worse almost like yeah, uh, you mentioned the hope thing there. I, so one thing that I learned from a very good female mentor was that hope is not a strategy. So you, you don't just say you hope. That That's like just putting aside and kind of believing that time is somehow yeah. going to yeah, solve yeah. the issue, which we very much know it doesn't. So hope is not a strategy. Yeah, they did come out and they apologize. Did they apologize? Or they called it a stuff up, whatever it was, and they published a list of eight women who I think came up as the top eight. Mm. Again, there wasn't really an analysis around there. So, yeah, it did. Was It was absolute tokenism. I mean, I did note, I think I note, uh, well, I, I should have anyway, is that I do like it when someone comes out and says, hey, we made a mistake or, you know, mm. I do like, I think that should be encouraged a little bit more. It's not like they came out and sort of stood their ground saying, well, you know, this is absolutely fundamentally what it is. This came up, you know, they tried to say that we made a mistake here, but I think it was, it should have been an opportunity from them for more analysis. And, you know, maybe that'll come in their next report. We'll see. Well, I think you've uh, pushed pushed on them to, to do that. Well, I, think, sure. I, I think a lot of people have pushed on them, so I'm not going to take any, any credit, but they're, you know, they're welcome to come chat with us. So anyway, on to our second story, which does speak of some epic failures as well. So basically this story comes from a report that we published from Job Watch this week, and it highlights how employers are failing to actively respond to employee complaints about workplace sexual harassment and discrimination. So they found that, um, and this is very staggering, that 95% of respondents experience discrimination either multiple times or by multiple perpetrators. And almost three in four respondents said they experienced multiplied adverse outcomes as a result, including loss of job opportunities, financial reward and workplace bullying, among other things. Just 3%, seems like this VC figure that we've seen elsewhere, there's something about the 3%, but just 3% said taking action against their experience of sexual harassment and discrimination resulted in a positive outcome. I was just like absolutely shocked by these results um, that three in five employers are not taking internal complaints of sexual harassment and discrimination seriously and do not effectively protect employees in the workplace. I mean, I'm just so shocked by that given everything that's going on everything that we read all the rhetoric that we also hear from employers as well about not wanting this to happen in their workplace it's one thing to not be preventing it it's another thing altogether to not be responding what did you make of this study and research yeah it's pretty it's pretty horrifying isn't it um yeah i mean like the, the fact that these complaints can move ahead without any action if you were a woman in the workplace being sexually harassed um, and that was your experience, why would you put yourself through that again? Mm. I suspect that there's a lot more to this as well. Like this probably is only highlighting part of the issue. Like, But, yeah, I mean it's really problematic. I think as well what we've seen over the last couple of years is employers really pulling back on their HR and diversity and inclusion remit and I've spoken to a lot of organizations that have really quite clearly done this you know big big organizations that that's where they're pulling funding from but if you don't have those teams in place and those protocols in place to follow up on things 
properly, it's it, I think it's going to cause massive issues in a in a really long term sustained way. I just don't think that that's where money should be pulled from companies at the moment. I know it might seem like the the easiest place to to dip out from, but it's going to cause long term issues. And and look, I just think that this is really sad to see because, as you say, we've we have at least on the surface seen quite a lot of progress in this space, and we've seen policies enacted and frameworks enacted to try to you know limit the extent of sexual harassment and discrimination happening in the workforce. But if you don't have employers that are actively engaged and and willing to to kind of set up good processes there, then it's a bit meaningless. Yeah, well, it's also, I mean, it's also, I guess, the the changes to the law as well. And the the biggest changes to federal anti-discrimination law that we had last year in a very long time was putting that obligation on employers to actually actively prevent and address sexual harassment and sex discrimination in the workplace like mm. by you know the positive duty that was part of the um, respect at work report recommendation, mm. and it's like so so you know they're meant to be actively <laughs> reducing it, but here we are with people saying that they're not even responding to it when it happens. So it just feels like there's a huge gap there. I think employers exploit situations because not everyone is you know cognizant of these policies. They're not across them. You know we we live in a bit of a bubble where we cover this kind of news every single day but for you know the average worker it's unlikely that they know necessarily the extent of their rights at work and so employers are obviously kind of capitalizing on that and exploiting that which is um so disheartening to see but I would just wonder you know how you kind of make that information more readily available whether or not that's an onus that's on the government as well to actually kind of put some training in place within employers as well. So, yeah, I don't know. I don't really know what the answer is here. I think it's really just disturbing to see that this is still happening in such a huge way. Like 95% of respondents experiencing Mm. discrimination is Mm. just mind-boggling and just horrific. So not a good news story, this one for sure. So maybe a slightly better news story. Do you want to take us to this one, Tyler? Yes, I always like a better news story. Um, uh, So this was actually, I think, probably my favourite story of the week. There's a lot of talk right now about normalising menopause and perimenopause in the workplace. And it's something that at least half the population will go through at some point in their lives and symptoms can severely affect people's day-to-day lives. Um, But it is one of those issues that we have really struggled to talk about in an open forum, you know, and I think women have have really kind of been conditioned not to to speak about that, not to disclose what's going on for them. But one woman this week stepped up as a trailblazer in normalising this stage of life. So Imogen Crump is the editor at the University of Melbourne's Pursuit and Research news website, and she's a former BBC and ABC journalist. She was talking through the news headlines on Wednesday morning's ABC News Breakfast um, when she, she stopped mid-sentence and she said, I'm so sorry. I could keep stumbling through, but I am having such 
a perimenopausal hot flush right now live on air and she laughed her way through it and she was fanning herself to cool down and ABC News Breakfast co-host Lisa Miller stepped in and I just I loved Lisa Miller's response in this instance as well because it was so quick and you know just filled with solidarity and I loved it so she she applauded Crump for her honesty and she said we need to make it normal to have these kinds of conversations and Crump said I don't think hormones respect national television so yeah it was just it was a really nice moment I thought and it came off the back of Larissa Waters last week announcing she would motion for an inquiry into the impact of menopause and perimenopause on women and yeah, look, it does seem like this stage of life is being talked about more and more. And we're doing an event um, actually next year on this early in the year. So lots of really great work being done on this issue. But it does take women like Imogen Crump to, to really <laughs> showcase what it is and normalize the conversation and, you know, thank God for it. So yeah, no, it's great to see the conversation progressing ahead so much just with with that moment and also like you say about the recent announcements that we've seen from both state and in both state and federal politics not so much an announcement I guess that came from the Greens in the sense that that's uh, what she's pushing for which sounds like an excellent idea I think we definitely need that and then I know Tala there was also I mean on this um, there, there has been not not so much to Imogen Crump but there has been some pushback regarding the idea of going too far with the issue of menopause at work if that could have some kind of pushback on women at that age. Um, yeah yeah I mean I think it's a health issue that just we need to look at holistically and we, we don't want it to be something that you know causes additional barriers for women at work and we know that you know women are already experiencing really profound ageism at the work in the workplace and so there have been commentators who have spoken up and said look this is an issue if we are framing menopause as something that's really debilitating for every single woman it's not the case I think what we really need to do as advocates but also you know if you're an employer to, to really be kind of listening properly to this issue and to be looking at the full kind of spectrum of women's health and the issues that really do need attention and focus. Obviously, menopause is is one of them, but, you know, there are a significant number of, of other women's health issues that really do need um, attention and focus as well. So, look, I think normalising the conversation around menopause is is really important. I think we just need to be wary of you know how we how we frame it and um and so long as we're not kind of creating another barrier for women at work so i think that is it for us this week on the crux do you have any final thoughts tala not huge amount i mean obviously the rba <laughs> increased interest rates again this week which i think is stressful obviously as we lead into christmas mm-hmm. it's stressful for so many families right now I think there's a lot of uncertainty and volatility and I I have a lot of empathy for a lot of people in Australia that are really doing it tough and I know I'm feeling the pressure of it but but I know that there would be you know thousands of others that are, are feeling it so much more acutely so I think at this point in time when we're we're you know just a few weeks out from Christmas we really need to be banding together and and you know, trying to be there for each other as much as possible. Yeah, 
Yeah, exactly. Uh, and on that note, uh, given uh, rate rises and given <laughs> being a small business that we run here, I guess I'll leave this as my final thought. But uh, my final thought was just the uh, report that came out yesterday regarding, and this happens every year, this report where we get like a bit of insight into the companies that are doing very big business in Australia and paying no corporate tax. And mm. it is worth going and having a little look at that list, which includes a lot of oil and gas companies. So it includes the likes of uh, Exxon. All the good and, ones. Uh, all the good ones. <laughs> uh, but a nice little uh, one there was uh, the ones News that Corp. really deserve a sweetener. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But News Corp was on there as well. And I just think, it, I mean, it's so like, oh, it's so tough to see that. And just, you know, when, when you're a small business and, you know, you're doing, uh, you have to do everything right in terms of tax, obviously, because you have no choice because you don't have armies of lawyers or however it happens to be able to circumnavigate loophole to specialist <laughs> revenue and profit and and just you know yeah so i think it is interesting and just worth keeping in mind and go and check out the list uh we'll probably do something at some point over the next few days on women's agenda as well beat down some doors <laughs> and so on that note uh, that is it for us this week a reminder you can uh, catch up on all the stories that we have discussed at some somewhere on our website womensagenda.com.au where you can also subscribe to our daily lunchtime update and get the stories as we publish them thank you for listening 